Good morning, everybody. We are happy here to have uh, two people from the University of Virginia. I'm thrilled to have um, to speak with today because I want to share your good work with our audience. The first being Tegan Medico and the second being Dr. Jeffrey Gander. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us today here, Bill. We appreciate it. Good morning, Bill. Thank you very much. We, we are very honored and, and happy to talk about um, the stuff we're doing, but also how much fun we're having doing it. Let's let's start with um, Tegan. Tegan, um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing, the magic that you're doing at, at UVA. I want to hear about that. Can you share that with our audience? Sure. Well, first, it's a big team effort. Um, so I'm speaking on behalf of lots of people who are doing great work. Um, so what we have started doing um, about a year ago is thinking about child food insecurity and how we as a as healthcare providers and health, a healthcare organization at UVA can address this problem in our community. And it was really inspired by just sort of the observations of people struggling during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so it started off with a partnership with the Charlottesville Local Food Hub with their Fresh Pharmacy program. So this is a program that they had already been doing um, where uh, they were working with local farmers, um, collecting locally grown fresh food and uh, delivering it to, to families. And so what we did is we started to screen for food insecurity at um, some select clinics at UVA identifying food insecurity and really referring families to this program. Um, so that is one side of what we're doing. This Can pharmacy. I just ask you a quick question about that? I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt. Um, so you're a dietitian and that mm -hmm. and and that's how this is the department that you're in and you were collecting data. Did you collect the data? What did that look like? Um, so we haven't started collecting data yet, but that is one thing that we want to do. So yes, I'm a dietitian. I specialize in pediatrics. So I'm every everything, nutrition, oral tube feeding, intravenous nutrition, all of it, I'm sort of in, involved with. Um, and so Dr. Gander had, had approached me and one of my colleagues to sort of get these initiatives off the ground. Um, and so we didn't, we actually didn't do any baseline data collection or any sort of formal community needs assessment. It was just sort of the sense that people were struggling. Um, and we thought, well, why don't we go ahead and, and try to do some of these programs and see what happens? See if they're being used and see if we can expand. I love it. So you were able to then connect the dots in the community to help people who were dealing with food insecurities to get um, um, the help that they needed. Can you, for our audience, share exactly what food insecurities are? Yeah. Um, and I thank you for that question, because one thing that I learned is that everybody kind of has a different idea of what this means and a different image of a food insecure person, um, you know, depending on what our sort of preconceived notions are. So one of the main um, definitions that you will find quoted over and over again in the literature on food insecurity, that it is the limited or uncertain availability of nutritionally adequate and safe foods or the limited or uncertain ability to acquire foods in socially acceptable ways. That's the official definition. Um, the USDA, so the US Department of Agriculture, subcategorizes food insecurity into two types, low food security and very low food security. Low food security exists when households have to alter the quality, variety, and desirability of their diets, but the quantity of food intake is not yet affected. 
very low food insecurity exists when the quantity of food intake is disrupted. And I think it's important to emphasize here that reduced quality of the diet due to lack of resources is still food insecurity. Food insecurity is not starvation. And even with very low food security, reduced food intake doesn't need to be all the time. It can be intermittent and it usually is. Mm -hmm. I think people don't understand, you know, in mainstream America that there are countless children going home to empty refrigerators or empty empty counters. And they don't really, you know, there isn't a family plan for, for getting food. Um, they have, I, I had a question about how, the impacts really on health. And if you could share any of the information that you may have just like off the top of your head uh, on, you know, in food insecurity, and a child's health. What does that look like? What are the impacts there? So there are several associations with numerous negative health outcomes um, related to health and development and actually healthcare access. And these are associations, so we always have to be a little bit careful about questioning the mechanisms. Like, are we dealing with the consequences of poor nutrition or are we dealing with other social determinants of health that coincide with food insecurity or maybe a little bit of both? Um, but there's pretty good evidence to suggest an independent effect of food insecurity on some outcomes, particularly those related to healthcare access. So delaying medical, dental, and mental health care, which in turn has really big implications for health outcomes. Wow. <laughs> right. It's really, it really is, you know, what you're doing now is really uh, the most basic in making sure um, we can keep our children healthy. Um, can you share with me what a healthcare provider might do if they sus, you know, if they're suspect of of the, you know, because we don't expect every healthcare provider to be aware of every issue. But are there signs? Are there things that they can do to say, wow, you know, we're a little bit worried about this? Or can they point to somebody? Is there an action step they can take? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, Dr. Gander is going to talk a lot about some of the initiatives that we've done at EVA. And I do think that more and more healthcare organizations are considering things like produce prescription programs, meal delivery services for patients with chronic disease, and even some on-site food pantries. And I think we'll see more and more of that into the future as healthcare organizations become more innovative way, think about more innovative ways of, of servicing patients. But in the meantime, there's still a lot of concrete actions that, that healthcare healthcare organizations and individual providers can take. So one thing that we really um, emphasize is screening for food insecurity. And this can be done in, in a pretty streamlined fashion. There's a food insecurity screen. It's called the hunger vital sign. It's two questions. It's validated and it can be done on intake. So people come in for their appointments. They get asked a bunch of questions. And these can be two questions that can kind of be integrated in there. And then if someone screens positive for food insecurity, knowing what resources are available, um, whether that's a national resource, a state resource, or even a lot of community-based organizations. We can um, talk about Charlottesville a little bit. There's um, Charlottesville has a very rich community um, of, of people and organizations very active in the food access space. So just knowing what they are and being able to connect patients to services that already exist is one, is one simple option. And there are website tools. There are um, 
phone number based tools that can be provided to families that they can just put in their zip code and learn about food resources hyper local to where they live because we know that transportation can also be a big problem a big barrier for a lot of people so i would say one screening people identifying who they are and then connecting them with resources that may already exist can you share with us what those two questions are can you is there a can you tell yes yes I always have to, they're very similar. So I always have to um, look them up real quick, make sure I'm saying the right thing. Okay. okay. So <laughs> the well, first good. question good. is good. within the past 12 months, we worried whether our food would run out before we had money to buy more. So it's a yes or no response. And then the second question is within the past 12 months, the food we bought just didn't last and we didn't have money to get more. And answering yes to either one of those questions is a positive screen. Gotcha. Okay. And then are there places that collect that data? So you can, are there ways that, is there a clearinghouse where that information goes? Is that passed on beyond the patient, beyond the individual? Yeah, not in a centralized fashion to my knowledge, but that's something that we're trying to do at UVA Children's. Mm -hmm. We've started screening um, on intake when- um, Right kids come into the um, our specialty clinic building. And so we we are able to collect that data and run reports well, on it's it. interesting. People yeah. don't think of that until they start hearing it more and more and more. And they're like, wait a minute, this sounds like something bigger than an occasion. No, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so that's why I was curious. I'm glad to hear you've started that process. Um, I And I'm super grateful you're here today. Thanks for all your good work. I really appreciate it, Tegan. Um, doctor, can you please share with the audience your background um, sure. as a physician, what you do? Can you share with us on that? Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm a practicing uh, pediatric surgeon. Um, I grew up in the Northeast of New Jersey, and I went to medical school there, and I did a surgical residency and then a fellowship in pediatric surgery at Columbia Presbyterian mm-hmm. up in New York City. And then in 2014, I moved down here to Charlottesville um, to start my practice and, and to join the, the faculty. And I also work at the School of Medicine uh, teaching students. My interest in, in food insecurity and um, helping people is um, just a lot had to do with how often I was seeing my own patients um, with, with similar problems. And, and your, pa- your patients are, just to interrupt a sec, your patients are, can you tell us about your patients? You, what type Absolutely. of patients do you have? Absolutely. So my patients run from neonates, uh, babies born premature, really up until you know early adulthood, 18 to 21. And I, I'm a pediatric general and thoracic surgeon. So that could be appendicitis or cancers. Um, lung malformations, congenital gotcha. malformations, um, gallbladder disease. Um, it, it, it's pretty broad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but anyway, what I was noticing is that, um, especially in my, my teenage population, a lot of them were overweight and um, kept coming in with um, you know similar kind of weight-related issues, such as gallstones. Um, and, and that kind of got me thinking about, you know, how is there a way to pre- prevent um some of these diseases are happening, but also to help them so that as they grow, get older, you know, they're, they have a long life ahead of them, that they're not going to be having chronic uh, diseases such as diabetes, high blood pressure, um, sleep apnea uh, throughout their whole life. And which, you know, of course, we're always interested in lowering the risk for those illnesses because 
so many are a precursor to cancer. You know, Dr. Graham Colditz from the Nurses Study at Harvard and now from um, Washington University in St. Louis um, had said that really cancer prevention starts very young, really with the, you know, with eating. So um, I totally agree. I think it's you know, yeah. the um, American um, Cancer Society. I think their last paper was saying at least a third of cancers were related to obesity and, and you know, being overweight. It's, you know, it's a, it's a struggle. I myself have struggled with it, you know, a lot of my life. It's really, you know, it is, it is a struggle and you, and it is a, a real culture um, investment. Yeah, I agree. So can you share with us how you connected the dots? Like you've got these kids coming in, they're sick. Is any of this preventable? You're probably thinking, what can we do to prevent this? We've gone to their refrigerators. We know there's several things we can do to prevent this, but go ahead to talk. Was there a tipping point for the inspiration of this project? There was. Um, I remember speaking with a 15-year-old boy after he had um, appendicitis, which is um, usually a fairly straightforward operation, uh, but he was over 300 pounds, and which made it much more challenging. And so in the after visit, we were kind of talking about, you know, what are some healthy habits he, he can start to do? And uh, I said, you know, tell me typically what, what do you eat every day? He's like, well, I often skip breakfast and then I eat whatever the school lunch has, which is, you know, pizza. And, you know, and then I come home and my mom, you know, sometimes will make something. And I said, gosh, you know, um, that um, that's not, you know, an, an ideal um, diet, you know, to to you know, sustain you and, but also to, to prevent you from gaining weight. And so then, um, as, um, Ms. Tegan was mentioning, there's a lot of different organizations here in Charlottesville that are, um, in the food insecurity space. And then I learned about a group called cultivate Charlottesville, which amongst many things is also looking at how can we help school lunches. Now I do not want to disparage school meal programs because I really think they, they really are an excellent safety net. Um, and, and I know the um, schools do the best they can with the budgets that they have with those. Um, they're critical. I don't want to uh, disparage them at all. No, but, no, no, no. Yeah. But, I, but I know that, that they can be improved. And, and so um, this group, Cultivate Charlottesville, um, works in that space. And so I started meeting with them. And then I, I mentioned what I do. And they said, you know what? You really um, should look into this group called Local Food Hub, as Tegan started to mention. And they have a partnership with a bunch of farms in the area and you can write a prescription for, for healthy, fresh food for your patients. And, and that's kind of how it all started. And, you know, I, I knocked on Tegan's door one day and said, Hey, I've met some really great people who, who are doing some really neat stuff. Gosh, we should partner with them. Uh, and, and that's kind of how it got started. Well, I love it. I love it because, you know, the, the one thing we can do in, in this work is try to keep people out of doctor's offices. And we can do that by making sure there's some healthier options on, up front. And I know options and choices are, are, are tough for a lot of people, especially those that are dealing with several kinds of inequities. But the fact yes. that you're connecting the dots for them, you're able to provide them healthier diets, healthier foods, um, with the, you know, the idea of lowering risk for not only that patient, but the whole family. I mean, that, that's an excellent point because, you know, both Tegan and I are pediatric providers and that's kind of where it, it starts with that. They're kind of, those children are the, um, 
way to get the other families involved and, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. start to see these healthy choices are great. And now I have a little bit more money to use for something else, you know, instead of mm-hmm. having to. And healthier options are becoming much more affordable. We used to be very active in something called the nine-minute meal, which is we had figured it took about nine minutes to go through drive-through. And, and, you know, what can you make in that amount of time? Well, lots of great things, healthier, less expensive, in a, in a faster time. And, and there are some models out there where it can be done, but it, it isn't always easy. I remember speaking to a group of people um, on this very issue, and we were talking about um, a soup kitchen that was serving organic meals. There was a lot of great vegetable, a lot of that kind of thing. And this one woman said, you know, we make these choices to sometimes eat at fast food restaurants because it makes my kids feel normal. Mm. This was a homeless family. Wow. I thought, wow, that's what makes them feel normal. And I, I get that on some level, but I didn't even think that was even a possibility. And so the fact that in my observation, when we see programs like yours and you normalize the importance of it and it makes it not only a healthy choice or a healthy option, um, but it's also a great thing to do. I mean, you're connecting people to farm co-ops and, and, you know, you're involving, you know, you're really investing in a culture change here. And and one day, those experiences at farms are going to feel more normal than the drive through restaurant. And we try to make it as convenient for people as possible. I mean, there's so much involved in people's health, you know, and this food insecurity is just one part of it. But as Tegan was saying about transportation, food gets delivered directly to them. You know, that way they don't have to miss school, right. miss work. Um, is, the food always, is the food always um, delivered or are there options to pick it up? It's always delivered to homes. Is that correct? It is. Um, you know, I think eventually, maybe when our COVID pandemic goes away, we may give the families the option to come pick it up. Mm-hmm. But at least now with um, you know difficult transportation, but also not wanting as many people to come to the hospital. Right. You don't want to further the risk. Unless you I really need that. to. I get it. So what year did you both start doing this? What year was this? Um, as the pandemic was hitting, honestly. It, so um, the program officially started in the fall of 2020, um, but the ideas of it started around March 2020. And I was mentioned earlier about this group, Cultivate Charlottesville. They had set up a, um, a day uh, in the, during the spring break in April 2020 um, when students are out and they don't have access to, to their, their usual school lunches and, and we're handing out lunches. And that's kind of where a lot of that, you know, that idea started. And so now our, our, our fresh pharmacy program has been in place for a year. And then for about the last six months now, we started a clinic-based uh, healthy food pantry uh, that people can access the, the day that they come in for their routine vaccines or whatever visit they're going to. Wow. Wow. And then how is that um, moder- How do you regulate or manage that one piece when people come in? What does that look like, the pantry? So uh, Taken said this earlier, everybody, um, for whatever reason you're coming to the clinic is screened for food insecurity. And so if you screen, yes, um, our, one of our social workers comes meet with the family or the um, child and talks about what programs they're uh, eligible for, including the Fresh Pharmacy Program. And then they said, do you need food today? And, and if they say yes, um, we give a, a list of um, some food that Tegan and one of our other partners, Olivia Obertello, had put together, um, non-perishable food items that we believe are low salt, low sugar, oatmeal, that sort of thing, stuff that's healthy for you. 
uh, and then they can take food that day. Uh, and then we, we monitor it. We, we originally um, got some grants from Kroger's uh, foundation and right. they've been a really great partner for us. Um, mm-hmm. And we've continued to work with them. And then UVA Children's is also contributing to that as well as some other um, uh, local citizens as well. So it, that actually um, has been eye-opening how many different people uh, have. Well, we know the important it. work that UVA Children's is doing and I speak um, for myself, I'm so grateful to have you both doing the work that you're doing, bridging the gap on some of these critical issues, um, providing food really at people's fingertips and, and when they need it most. And, you know, I, there's nothing worse than being in the hospital, being hungry, and then going home, not feeling well to an empty kitchen. So, you know, that's incredible work and it's very much needed. Um, Is there a way that people can support this work? How can they support? I know we're going to put links up about your backgrounds and um, how they can be in touch, but is there a way that they can be part of this and support this work? Yeah, um, uh, we do fundraise through um, UVA's foundation. Mm -hmm. Uh, All that money goes directly to purchasing food or to the... um, so none of these families are charged any money. It's, right. it's totally free to them. And for those who wish to kick in and help out, they can go to the UVA website, yes. to their foundation website. And is there a drop down or something that they can click on where they can say, okay, we'd like to. If you say UVA Children's Fresh Pharmacy, and that's a pharmacy with UVA Children's Fresh Pharmacy. That's good. Right. But, okay. We like hearing that. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do? What can our audience members do to in their own communities to do what you're doing or, or move the needle in some way so those kids that we suspect of not really having the access they should, how can they help? I would say just recognizing that it is a problem and it's it's maybe even under um underestimated how many people you know have food insecurity. Mm-hmm. And that also that it's not a um, a, a personal defect that, oh, you're obese or you are right. unhealthy because you don't like to eat healthy food. Uh, they may not have access to it or may not be able to afford it. It's uh, a chronic but, health issue. It's really, yeah. it's really, it's epidemic, it's chronic, it's, you know, um, would it be reasonable for people in their communities to reach out to their local hospital to say, ask them maybe if they knew a way they could help them Absolutely. bridge that gap? Would that be maybe a good step? Absolutely. Um, you know, um, local health systems have a lot of um, experience with taking care of patients and and a lot of access to funds. And, and I think they can really do a lot for their local community. Yes, they can. And they have a lot of information. They have, they understand where they're sending people. So, uh, so you might want to speak to a patient advocate or a social worker at a hospital to see how you might be able to help in your community. So that's great. I love what you both are doing. I'm so glad you were here to join us today. Um, I hope we can work together in the future to support you in some way. And I, um, you know, and appreciate you being here. We understand that we, when we, um, you know, work to prevent disease and lower risk, it starts at our table. That's where all this starts. It starts at our table. And we have an opportunity in many cases, to lower that risk. And when access isn't available, there are some solutions out there that we're all working on. 
to make happen. So thank you for your important, good work. We're so grateful to have you here today. Uh, Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Uh, We really, really appreciate it.